welcome pudding people to another episode of everybody loves pudding we are your hosts ken seymour and richard geiger how you doing richard doing uh, quite well constructed a couch today the end well that's a a little more uh, a little more active than I've been, but I like to think of my uh, brawn residing primarily in my mind, so I'm not particularly helpful with pickle jars, but if you have a Sudoku, I'm your man. Okay, so maybe that's a little too like self-aggrandizing, but you know, I gotta have something, because uh, it's not my looks. I'm, I'm not gonna get it from that. All right. So enough, enough of me, uh, enough of me talking uh, nonsensically to start our episode. I am so excited. We have a guest returning, Miss Jessica Manor from the Body Count Podcast. How are you doing, ma'am? Well, I didn't construct a couch today, but I have spent a lot of time on one. Let me tell you, I'm doing fantastic, and thank you for having me back, guys. It is, it is a joy every time. Um, now, for those of you that were not fortunate enough to listen to the last episode that she was on, uh, she does a podcast relating to history and trying to remember our mistakes and the bloody outcomes relating to those mistakes. Um, it is, uh, I think, something of a, a similar mindset. You know, you count the real bodies, I will count the fake ones in movies, and I think, uh, I think it all works out. I think it does, you know, and um, a lot of times we cover things that um, they're situational to body counts, uh, led to body counts. We talk about everything from all out wars to, you know, we had an episode in which we talked about presidential deaths and incapacitations and what kind of happens when something like that happens and how the government forms around and how it works. So it's all really interesting, but yeah, you guys, you guys count those movie bodies. We count the real ones. I think it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> I do too. Now I know a lot of this has uh, a lot of this episode specifically uh, was kind of caused by a bit of uh, documentary watching from our good Mr. Geiger. He's been, he's been, thinking a lot about history recently. So we're going to take that left turn. We're going to talk less about pop culture. There's going to be a little bit in here. We're going to talk a little bit about how pop culture intertwines with this, but we're going to focus more on the actual happenings of, you know, the big, one of the biggest conflicts to help shape for our world. And we're going to start with a quick toast to our guest and our co-host, a little salut with a little vodka. And I'm going to let Richard take it from here. Some vodka. So, I guess we're gonna start it, and we can go back to one of the uh, one of the episodes that we did long ago. We did our our top TV shows, at least. I, I mean, gosh, that was a long time ago. And one of the ones that I had at the top of my list was Band of Brothers. I always thought that one was just really really good really I, I love the little interludes at the beginning of the episodes when it had the actual real veterans talking about their experiences and i wish they make whole episodes just dedicated to listening to and talking to those folks but as i don't know for some reason i just keep going back to it every year every other year or so i'll just sit back and watch it watch all the episodes after that one came out was the Pacific and the Pacific. I don't know if a lot of folks thought it was not as good or not as genuine or not as, 
I don't know, I don't know what. But every time I rewatch that one, I get more and more, I guess, sucked into life and how people lived and what the actual representation was for a lot of folks for the war. And the more I watch the Pacific, the more I like it better than Band of Brothers. Now, I know that these are both Hollywood productions. I know that it's totally in no way, shape or form a true representation. It's as good as it's going to get, I guess. And I know a lot of things are Hollywooded up, let's call it. And I know a lot of the events that take place as presented aren't actually factual in their representation. Um, but to me, they're still entertaining and they still make you think about what happened at such a long time ago. And when I look at how things are discussed and maybe I'm crazy at this, but we, we talk a lot, I think as a culture about what happened in world war two in Europe, all the big events, you know, in Europe, this Europe, this, a lot of the movies revolved around the things that happened in Europe. Obviously D-Day was a huge event. Um, all the individual, you know, triumphs and failures, you know, like the, the battle of the bulge or, um, market garden you know like there, there's just all the things that you hear about in movies and the terms and stuff like that hitler was bad you know the concentration camps were bad like that's what you hear about and you also hear a little bit about japan but i don't think you get a true representation of the battle of the fight of what actually went on in the in the pacific theater compared to the amount of information that's delivered to us from the European theater. So that's kind of where I really wanted to start, where, you know, the, the, the big thing was Pearl Harbor, of course, right? So that's what really got everybody's spirits into wanting to join the military, want to join the army, the Marines, the whatever, and, and fight. But going let's go back even beyond that because you had some discussion points that go back well beyond the start of the war well beyond even world war one as to what kind of led to the events of japan and then trying to gain power and access and resources right right um one thing i completely am right there with you on uh, <laughs> Everything that is Stephen E. Ambrose's books, and I really enjoy the show Band of Brothers in the Pacific, and, and it's pretty interesting because, yes, they're Hollywooded up a bit, but some of the stories that are actually in the books don't even make it to that, and, and sometimes they're even a little more fantastic out of these guys' mouth than what they what they represent because it was just, one, he's, he's a gifted storyteller and the way he puts everything together but i really enjoy both of those series you're exactly right they are fantastic but you are right in that a lot of times people focus on the western front because it's a little more clear cut i i would think um not a lot of people understand why it is the Japanese would attack Pearl Harbor. Um, I, the, the very first episodes that we did of my podcast uh, came out on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor and on Pearl Harbor Day. And that is the very first thing I talked about when I started this podcast. 
And it's, it's incredibly complicated, our relations with Japan. You know, it's pretty clear cut. Everybody knows what's going on on the Western Front. But it's hard for something for people to get really excited about because at the end of the day, it, it seems like it's out of nowhere and it gets put into this whole Western Front narrative when the reality is the United States of America has always, you know, been the United States of America. And I like to always say the isms, racism, imperialism, uh, nationalism. That's always been kind of part of, of our history, the same as it is with the British or the French or anything like that. So that's really where the story in the Eastern Front begins. So we're going to go all the way back to 1853 when Commodore Perry decides to take the old U.S. Navy for a whirlwind tour over to the Pacific and he kind of forces Japan to open up their doors, if you will, and trade with America and, and kind of drags Japan out of, and this is ironic, considering it's the United States and isolationism is our bread and butter in the 20th century, drag Japan kind of out of its own sense of isolationism. And of course, the British become involved. Uh, I've got some great books out there. But in mind, Josh Proven wrote a book recently about the British involvement from 53, 54 to 58, I want to say, in Japan. So it really, we open up this Western door. And it's really interesting because we've got all this stuff going on in Europe and on the Atlantic and all of this is always going on and it's always part of the narrative we focus on. Whereas the United States is in a unique position in that it's got this whole other ocean. It's got this whole other front, this whole other gate open in the Pacific. And we share a lot of that with Japan but we share it with the French. We share it with a, a lot of things. And so we kind of go through and we start claiming islands. We're pulling Japan out of its isolationism. And we have, of course, an industrial boom, but unknown to us or, or something we didn't necessarily track or mark, Japan really starts to industrialize the same way that Western countries are. Which is interesting, even though it's a largely agricultural society, they begin to militarize. Um, for a while, we have a little bit of switch in Japan where you have the government really get into this, you know, civilian populist rule kind of thing. We, we turn away from the emperor and we turn away from a hyper militarized society. But then... You know, and this goes on, this goes on. In, in 1902, somewhere in there, Japan is getting very tired of, they, they don't have, a, it's a small island with a massive population, right? They do not have a lot of raw materials. So as they watch this race for, for global domination occurring in the West, it becomes very apparent to a lot of the younger culture in Japan, oh shit, if we don't get on this, we're going to be dependent on Western culture and Western imports from now till the end of time, right? And so it weirdly 
sparks this kind of move toward traditionalist Japanese culture, which, again, is a very militarized samurai culture. It's just another word for a sort of militarized culture, which is really, really, um, you know, a little bit bizarre and a little interesting because a lot of times in the West, you see these moves towards socialism and you see this move toward kind of free hippie love and everybody. And you, you see all this unionization and things occurring in the West, whereas Japan goes a little bit opposite, right? Their young people are like, we're tired of this. Let's kind of go back to traditional ways, what our culture used to be. And it turns into this weird sort of embracing of a samurai culture, which is just another word for militarization. So that is the first spot that always really intrigues me is in a way that kind of go the opposite direction of what a lot of the West tends to go. You know, the the more we get into younger generations and younger generations, it's we want to drop some of the race and we want to drop all this, whereas Japan kind of goes the other way. So that always intrigues me um, when we're talking about Japan. And that's it, it kind of sets the stage for what we're going to be getting into in terms of imperialism and nationalism starting in the you know year 1900. Now, at what point, sorry, before you go, at what point does Tom Cruise come into play? (laughs) You know, the uh, title of my Pearl Harbor episode, the first one, I believe, was The Road to Beckinsale, because just so we all knew, I I absolutely hate that Pearl Harbor movie. Uh, I hate it so much. Um, But... uh, you know, when, when does he come into that samurai well, he, he culture? Was, he was the last samurai, right? I mean, I seem right. to remember that. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, You Richard. know, I never saw that one, but I do vaguely remember something about that. It actually covers some of the topics that you're talking about. Again, like Richard was saying, in a very Hollywoodized and uh, sim- simplified manner, but very entertaining at the same point. I'm going to have to take your word for it. That might be one I never uh, tune into and always miss, you know, but um, now you've got me interested. I've never watched it. So I'm definitely going to have to uh, give that one a perusal. So we're in this place, right, with Japan. We've got this situation going on. They're realizing there's this militarization. And, And in the way that the United States is still kind of functioning in this manifest destiny dream, right? The Japanese, in their own way, mirror it with something called uh, the new Asian order sort of thing. In other words, Japan was going to make it their mission to imperialize the Pacific in kind of sort of the same way that you see Western nations imperializing colonies in, say, Africa, or, which is going to be important, parts of China, um, parts of Vietnam, a lot of places that Japan also happens to have their eye on. Now, that being said, we jump into the First World War, Japan's on our side, right? They're with the Allied side, because they're thinking... I, you know, it's, it's kind of, they're thinking, well, this is going to, they're, they're going to finally recognize us as a power equal to their own. Right. And I'm, 
I'm kind of skipping the Russo-Japanese War. What the most important thing to note about that is, and uh, the rest of the world sort of takes note, that uh, Japan bounces onto the world stage very quickly when they just decimate a European power, Russia. And I mean, it's not like there's nothing madcap or wacky about it, right? Like it is an ass whipping like you would not believe, as we say in Texas, where I'm from, guys. <laughs> uh, so they don't just, you know, like sashay onto the scene. They come onto the scene in this big way that makes everybody go, oh, shit, and take notice. Because, like I said, interestingly enough, despite being a agricultural sort of society they bust onto the scene in a big freaking way and and make everybody take notes so for a little time you know you've got all that going on and of course teddy roosevelt back in the day felt the need with his uh big stick or big dick diplomacy as i call it to uh park the great white fleet outside of japan and so there's this this growing tension that's not really spoken about. And so when they jump into World War I on our side, I think the Japanese are thinking, hey, we're a global power. Hey, we're military badasses. Like, we're about this shit. Quit parking your fleet. We, wanna, we want a piece of the pie. We want a share of this. We are going to get ours. We're going to get a share. Well, then we have a little something called the Treaty of Versailles, guys. And I don't know how much your listeners know about it, but that shit rag sure causes a lot of problems in the globe. It is basically a peace treaty to end the First World War and guarantee the second, um, without a doubt. And so a lot of times when people talk about the Eastern Front and they, they talk about, you know, Japan and the the Pacific, they get into a lot of what is going to be talk about natural resources. And we're going to get to that. And it's definitely a big part. And it, it definitely becomes a big part once we hit the depression. But interestingly enough, there's a little, a little caveat as a side sort of thing we have to talk about with the Treaty of Versailles. So one, Japan thinks they're going to make out a whole hell of a lot better than the way things shake out at the end of the war, right? They get some territorial gains. They get their instep into China. They get some things, but nothing like they were thinking, right? They think they're going to walk away with, you know, the lion's share of the Pacific. And what do we do in our imperialist, nationalist, racist pants? We kind of fuck them. But more important than that, when it comes to the Treaty of Versailles, as we all know, Woodrow Wilson's kind of an unapologetic racist, always was, always will be. You know, I'm not sad that his name's coming down from buildings and libraries, yada, yada. But the Japanese proposed something kind of interesting for the Treaty of Versailles. They want a racial equality clause. In other words, stating basically, hey, no matter what country, you know, you may be from this, this Asian country, we're not going to look down on you in essence. You're going to be an equal part of the League of Nations. You are on a level 
with all of us. Everything's, you know, cool. You're one of the guys. You're here. You're in that big five. You're one of us. And what does Woodrow Wilson do? And of course, all of those Western powers along with them go, ah, no, something like that might be too embarrassing for all of us. You absolutely can't put that in there. And so they outright deny a racial equality clause that the Japanese, that's the one thing, they were going to be okay with being short-shifted on territory. They were going to be okay with everything. This is the one thing they really wanted to push for. And they wanted that equality. Yeah, and they wanted that equality in the League of Nations. And, of course, we shit all over it. So this is really the beginning of, all right, you want to play this game sort of thing. When we get into things with Japan, and it kind of steamrolls from here, but it's something that doesn't get mentioned a lot. And I always think it's very, very interesting. We always want to earmark here and earmark there. But I think this is really when I look at things. And again, I'm not a military historian. I'm more of a big picture 20th century gal. When I look at it all put together, I think this is really where Japan just goes, you know what, no matter what we do. You guys are just going to shit all over us. Let, like, mark it down. Let's remember this. Um, and things kind of start to steamroll from there. But as you know, we roll into what is the Great Depression. Now, in America, we, we always think about how terrible the Depression is here. You know, we go full grapes of fucking wrath with it. That's what we've got in our mind, Dust Bowl. If things are bad here, I want you to think about the rest of the world, who's, one, been hit a lot harder by the First World War. A lot. But let's specifically take a look at Japan. Despite being particularly good at militarization, let's not say, and, and we can't really say that they're industrialized in, say, the way that maybe Europe is. Again, largely an agricultural society. So think about if the Depression was bad here, times that by 10, and that's Japan, man. Shit was rough, like really rough. And it was really going poorly for the Japanese. And so they're looking at this going, Boy, when we get out of this, we have to do something. We have to gain territories. We have to have something that provides us with raw materials so that we can industrialize, so that we can kind of keep up with the West because we can't depend on a largely agrarian society anymore. This is the 19, you know, 20s sort of thing. And then on top of that, they've got that in their mind, but there was also a massive earthquake in 23, I believe it was. And so for a time, they they allow the West to come in and sort of build and, and mechanize. And the next thing you know, these same people that are pretty, you know, annoyed and disheartened with the West fiddling. One, we've got no resources. We've got no colonization all because the west is kind of shit on us and now they've come in and they're trying to gentrify our entire country make it more western make it more 
you know, like the West and they're coming in and, and, and they're basically planting a flag. So if you remember those push toward a traditionalist society really starts to build. Turns out, you know, they don't love a Starbucks at this time <laughs> in their downtown uh, of Tokyo. So you've got that going on. You've got the depression going on. Things are not going great in Japan. And so all these younger generations and all these military men keep taking a look around them, right? And going, we got to do something, guys. If, Sorry. If, we, if we can't, that's right. If we can't make, we'll take. That's exactly it. Well, if they, we can't make, we'll take. And, and I feel like one of the things that people don't quite understand, at least in the modern age, when they think of militaries, let's say after World War One, they don't think that the United States military is like it's very low key. Like it's not a big powerhouse mm -hmm. like what it is now. The Russian military, same the same way. Like it, it's just not. The German military they they weren't allowed to have a military after world war one that didn't stop hitler from obviously creating one <laughs> later on but they they technically weren't allowed so like the big players in the military world at the time like france like france had one of the biggest militaries if i'm not mistaken after world war one like they were a powerhouse nobody thinks of france as a military powerhouse right now nobody thinks of japan thinks of japan as a military powerhouse but they were and that's i think when when you look back at history i think a lot of people look at the modern day and assume that it was something similar you know back then and it just it was dramatically different then than what the landscape is right now kind of going back to what you were saying like they had to do something so they hammered away and built this gigantic military military like navy and and everything like i, I it just the, the the thought process to me in some of these things are just like you know after you read and you watch some of the things like i i, I don't I, I never thought of a, a country like france of uh, at the time of just like like i said the like the biggest military at the time and I think that's goes into into play with Japan too, because you think, oh well, China's right there. China's got to have a huge military. No, and you like Russia, like you said, they had a war. No, like that that's that just wasn't the case back then. No, I think that is a good point. Let's talk a little bit about what militarization looks like on the globe. You're exactly right, um, China by this point, finds herself in the middle of a communist uprising. So not only do they have a military, they're split and split and split. China's in the middle of civil war. You've got the rise of Mao Zedong, you know, when we're getting into later periods in China. Um, Russia was a long-feared military power, but the reality is They've undergone through the First World War. They undergo the, the Bolshevik Revolution. So they've got a lot of poor farmers with pitchforks and scythes at this point. You're exactly right. France is rocking a military, right? They haven't forgotten. But despite having this massive military, they're not exactly training, outfitting, or necessarily preparing 
in a way that you're going to start seeing once Germany starts remilitarizing in the 30s. Britain, of course, is still the big dog on the scene. This is this is uh, still in a period where British imperialism is king. You know, the sun does not set at this point in time in history on the British Empire. That is no lie. They are also the big guns, a navy like you wouldn't believe. And then the United States, despite having massively militarized for the First World War, are now kind of down to a skeleton, a, a skeleton military, as, as you put it, because it's important to note, we want no part of anything going on in the globe. We are ostriches at this point. Our head is buried in that manifest destiny sand. Even though we've, we've achieved kind of that dream and that goal, we're about our own production, looking to our own borders, worrying about our own selves. So you're right. Not only are France and Britain the big dogs, so is Japan. They are having a great time in the Pacific, you know, just beefing up that Navy, beefing up that military. Um, so that is a really interesting point, Richard, because you're exactly right. We don't, I think a lot of people, when they look back at this time, they tend to color the map of what they're looking at post 45 in those same terms. Uh, so they see the world in 1950 when the reality is before the Second World War, things look very different in the 20s and 30s than what they look today. And that is incredibly important to remember when we start looking at how did we get to the point that the Japanese are having a go at Pearl Harbor. Um, so... A couple things happen in terms of our love of isolationism. In the 30s, we start to sort of limit immigration. And what is the one immigrant post, you know, railroad construction in the United States? We allowed a bunch of Chinese and Asian immigrants into the country. They built the railroads and then we took a mass shit all over them, right? So the United States wants farther and farther away from the rest of the world. And, and they pass a, a sort of immigration law in which they limit all immigration from Japan. No Japanese immigrants. Not only that, but the Japanese are not allowed to own or continue to own any land in the United States of America. To us, this is like, eh, we don't care. You know, Japanese ambassadors try to come to us and really appeal this decision and, and go, hey, guys, come on, this isn't cool. And we said, eh, yeah, you know, we don't really give a shit. Like, fuck off. Fuck off out of the United States. We're isolationism or we're isolationists. We really don't care. We don't want you here. Now, this, the day that they pass this, it, it's an actual national day of mourning in japan they just can't believe this we were on your side we were your allies i thought we were making headway and again it's just one of those things that the united states kind of ignores we just go about our business we don't care whereas it's at this point after this happens and after this is passed we see a sort of regime shift and a regime change 
in Japan in that they move away from a civilian controlled government, say, piss on it. Here you go, emperor. And what does he do? He drops control into the hands of what is kind of a cabinet of advisors. And they're all military men. Um, So it's at this point, they finally just kind of say, well, you know what? Piss on the West, like piss on you guys. You don't want us. We don't want you. And it sort of starts to really kind of kick up and kick off in earnest in that the Japanese know that they're going to have to get aggressive. They're going to have to get hostile in the Pacific in order to go ahead and industrialize, urbanize. They know that they're going to have to go out and seek land and territory with the raw materials they need to to make it to where they do not have to be dependent on any kind of Western import, specifically oil, jet fuel, rubber, all the things you need to build a badass military, which you have to then maintain to keep hold of your colonies that continue to provide those things for you so that you in no way have to be dependent on the West. So it's kind of this weird cyclical thing that you see going on. We have to do this. We have to do that to keep away from the West. And it just sort of feeds itself into a monster as imperialism tends to do, Mm -hmm. you know, that's um, instead of trade, imports, exports, all those kind of things, these, you know, we continue to be in this vicious sort of cycle. And what really kicks off this regime change as well is while we're in the midst of the depression, we really raise tariffs. I mean, like we get serious about tariffs on imports in the United States. So not only is Japan unable to sell us our goods, you know, we've got tariffs on our exports as well. They literally cannot afford at points to do business with us. So again, all of this stuff kind of keeps feeding into this monster. And and we always want to look at what the monster is in the West. But at the same time, where we kind of criticize appeasement in the West, the same sort of thing is going on in the East. Japan's getting more and more aggressive as we refuse to meet them halfway economically. We're nowhere near going to meet them halfway socially. Um, So in a way, we're kind of continuing to bury our head in the sand and not deal with anything um, that has to do with Japanese and the Japanese aggressions that are kind of occurring. And at this point, it's a little bit of a microaggression, but they start to grow and it starts to get a lot more serious. And we just refuse to open our doors, refuse to pull our head out and and kind of deal with this diplomatic situation that you're seeing going on in the East. Is that making any sense? Am I making sense? Are we following? Well, and it even reflects, it even reflects in the uh, movie industry because uh, up until the beginning of world war two, there is, there's a set of laws that are put into place that, um, that force neutrality, uh, uh, from the, the creators of film, they can't really comment 
on anything that's going on. It doesn't really pivot until 41. Uh, so anything, they, they can't even really criticize anything or say anything. And that's that, that's that head in the sand thing that you're talking about. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was a big driver and it's really how, how we tended to approach thing head in the sand. Um, and you know, after we have, uh, this ban on immigration and, and the way that we want to do or want to charge these ridiculous tariffs coming in from Japan, yada, yada, um, a little before they decide to jump out of the League of Nations and sign uh, with the the tripartite business. Before that, we have an interesting little little naval conference that occurs because for a little bit, you know, America's like, well, we got to try to do something, right? They, this is going to be a problem. We're going to do a little bit. Maybe we're going to keep up our, our large policy of appeasement. We don't want to deal with anything directly. We don't want to deal with this power, but we are going to try a little something. So there's a naval conference with the British, the Japanese, and the United States in which, and it's important to note, at this point in time, we had broken the current Japanese code. So we knew going into this naval conference that Japan was like, hey, we're going to come out of this equal with the United States and with Britain. Now, when they get into this conference, they know what the Japanese are going to ask for. And they end up, I mean, kind of screwing the Japanese. No, um, so no. what is, no, no, <laughs> never, no. Um, so what ends up happening is a deal is finally struck that basically for every five ships, destroyers, uh, largely at this time destroyers, because planes are going to come into effect also during this time, and the Japanese are going to become very, very aware of it because of this exact uh, little naval treaty. For every five destroyers that Britain and the U.S. turn out, the Japanese can only have three. So it's the 553 sort of, I know historians aren't particularly creative at naming things, guys. I, what can I say? I, um, I can only apologize. So it's this 553 sort of thing. And, you know, Japan's looking at this. Well, like, fuck you. Now, what are we going to do? You just screwed us out of all of this. We can't necessarily like tell the United States and Britain to like piss off. So they start to, and interesting enough, there's an exercise that is run by the U.S. military in which they invite a lot of their former allies to gather around and they demonstrate that planes dropping bombs are actually very, very effective against these giant naval destroyers, which, you know, these naval destroyers are a big factor in World War I. So not only... Do we fucking invite them? We show them, hey, it doesn't really matter if you can only launch three destroyers to our five. We're going to show you how effective bombers can be and how effective and dangerous airplanes and, and aviation can be. So basically, you know, we, <laughs> as is wont to do with the United States, we sort of wrote our own. Uh, Create our own problems. <laughs> We create our own problems there. 
We wrote our own ticket to a shit town, if you will. So I always found that very interesting is that's where Japan gets a little more creative um, in their military approach. Fine, we can't have these big destroyers, but guys didn't say anything about submarines. <laughs> guys didn't say anything about planes. Uh, you guys didn't say anything about which in every way it's just specifically this one. We, we don't say anything about aircraft carriers, nothing. It's just destroyers. But the Japanese, unlike maybe, you know, the United States, Britain, everything, they learned very early on with that Russo-Japanese War and then after the First World War as well. Uh, just what it means to mechanize and just what it means to go ahead and strip every notion of how we used to fight wars, including the first world war and realize it's a whole different ball game. And they're, they're definitely out to play as we well know. Well, I know Rich, <sighs> Richard is uh, very fond of ball games. He has, uh, <laughs> I think some baseball related questions. <laughs> baseball related questions oh maybe not maybe not maybe it's more world mm, war world war no. related questions well I, I do know that you you brought up a good point there is that you know destroyers 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 they they were like the flagship of navies plural like that's what you you rolled out a big thing that had a whole bunch of you know batteries on them that would just like pelt shells at other boats or on the shore and that's that was what was your shiny trophy that you paraded around but world war ii was pretty much the death of the destroyer because they were just proven to be so ineffective and so useless compared to the new technology of things like submarines and aircraft carriers that um there was a, a really fast shift to create bigger and better and fancier aircraft carriers that could handle more and more people and planes and, and substance like that. So that, that does bring up a very interesting point. You know, that Japan was facilitating that change already. Thanks to us. Good job. Guys. <laughs> well, it's right. Good, exactly. It's a good thing that Germany didn't learn the lesson with the, the submarines though, because theirs were terrible. Oh, legendarily. <laughs> no, uh, Germany didn't also take a look at what's going on in Japan and learn a lesson either, guys. Oh, no, of course not. Um, and it's really, really interesting, too, because, again, at this time, you've got Japan saying, well, you know what? Fuck you guys and leaving the League of Nations. And they really start to get into some Western philosophy, particularly the philosophy of Germany. And it's it's really interesting that you see this cross-section of cultures. And of course, we know the reality is Germany wasn't either, any more crazy about Japan than any of the other Western powers. But my God, how useful they're mm -hmm. going to be yeah. is kind of is kind of the German thought there. Um, so we talked a little bit about all that. Uh, the United States, and while I say we, we largely approach this from a place of appeasement, we do sort of get involved when Japan decides to jump into Manchuria and uh, 
get involved in China. And of course, like I said, China's in the middle of her own civil war, her own problems. Um, so, so we're going to travel over to a little place called Nanking. And um, we are not angels, but before you feel horribly bad for the Japanese at this point in time in, in a hyper imperialized sort of global society, they uh, go over to Nanking and the United States goes, oh shit, we better protect our interests, but we could give a fuck less about the Chinese too. And uh, the, the Japanese start testing out, uh, you know, some of these instruments of war and things they have in a little something that historians call the rape of Nanking. Now, you know, it's always going to be rough when it's the rape of Belgium and the West and the rape of Nanking. Again, I apologize that historians are not very fucking creative when we name things. You know, we just call a spade a spade when we take a look at it. And so uh, there's a whole lot of Japanese atrocities that occur at this time. Um, in a way, they have their own nationalistic and imperialist approach that ends up being kind of like their Western brothers that we start to really see as this militarized society starts to form in that Japan also has kind of the same attitude as the West. Fuck you guys. We're better than you. Nobody else matters. We're going to do what we need to do. But it's at this point that they really get an ingress into China and they start to collect all these things like rubber, natural resources that they need, again, to really get out from under that uh, that Western control. And it's at this point, the United States kind of goes, oh, shit, and starts to take a look at what's happening. But it's also important to note that even though they're looking, even though they're taking note, even though this is not looking good, a kind of appeasement policy is still going to continue because right up until Pearl Harbor, it's important to note that 99% of Americans were staunchly against any kind of involvement, either in the Pacific or in the Western fronts. We got what we need. We've got our islands over in the Pacific. Like, fuck off. We don't care. We don't want to be involved. We don't want to care about this. And I think it's, again, it kind of speaks to that. We think the world, when we think of this time, we always picture it in the world we live in today. Whereas like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest on the other side of the world, we've parked our fleet outside and are taking a look. This was not the case at that time. The last thing that America wanted to do was get involved in what they thought of as a foreign war. Oh, that's everybody else's problem. It's not our fucking problem. Who cares? Japan can do what they want. They can't come here. What, how does that affect us? What does it matter? Yeah, seeing that... Uh... Didn't they, like, uh, sanction them? Um, they don't even sanction them. No, they, they, they don't even... They do not care as long as U.S. interests are safe in the area. And they are. But then again, um, in a, a little note here, the Japanese attacked three U.S. carriers and warships outside of China and say, oops, guys, 
we're so sorry. It was an accident. We thought you were like the French or something, or maybe the Chinese, you know? <laughs> and again, America just says, oh, don't worry about it through gritted teeth. Because again, the population is really not going to be moved at this point. So honestly, you can even call that an early hostility. And not only do we not sanction, we just tell them, eh, don't worry about it. Sorry. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's cool. It's cool. Oops. Oops. <sighs> is exactly right. Yeah. So it's really, really interesting that this is going on, that happens. It's at this point that the League of Nations actually does kind of try to censor. And remember, even though Woodrow Wilson thought up the League of Nations, America is not a part of it at this time, guys. But the League of Nations over the Western powers go, wait a minute, what the fuck are you doing over here in Manchuria? Uh, you're being particularly horrific to this group of people. It's feeling a little war crimey. And finally, it's at this point that um, the Japanese say, fuck off, enough of you guys. We're leaving the League of Nations. And they sign that, you know, tripartite treaty with Italy and Germany. So this is the real point in history where we're through the looking glass now, folks, right? There is no turning back. But what's really interesting is once... At this point, America finally kind of pulls her head out of the sand when it comes to Japan and goes, oh, God damn it. You know, it's it, everybody knows anybody with a brain um, and, and a lot of people in the government know sooner or later war is going to come knocking at our door. But I think they maybe viewed it in terms of it's going to be more like the First World War. You know, it's going to knock quietly at the very end. They don't think that war is going to be brought to us. And so <clears throat> they kind of look up, they take note. At this point, you know, Britain's in the war. Britain's actually in it. We're getting into 40. We're getting into 38, you know, getting to the 40s. Shit's getting real. Um, and finally, the U.S. goes, well, you know what, Japan? If you're going to be on the side of these assholes and we're kind of with Britain, we're not going to step in <laughs> at any point. You know, we're not going to do anything about it, but we are going to sell them a shit ton of raw material and uh, military gear. Thank you, Rise of the Industrial Complex. Um, but they kind of swivel over to the east and take a look at Japan and go, oh, and for being on the side of these assholes we're going to stop trading with you altogether. Now that's going to be very important because 90% of the oil supply in Japan at that time comes from the United States of America. So in a way, even though we're thinking, Oh, we're going to get in this later, we kind of put a fucking stranglehold on Japan and make it inevitable that they're going to have to do something. I don't know. I think in terms of American thinking, there's no fucking way they're going to try us, right? That is just the American view to this. We're going to cut this off. They're going to simmer down in the Pacific. We're going to we're going to neutralize that threat right away. And if we have to get in the war, we're going to deal with Germany and Italy, right? Unfortunately, jet fuel, everything that Japan needs 
hold on to its colonies that it's acquired. And of course, we have the fall of France. So the Vichy government cedes even more Pacific territory, like Vietnam, all those things to the Japanese as well. So they've got more territory, more natural resources than they've ever had, but they are dependent upon our oil to get there at this time. They haven't been able to industrialize. It's mid-war, right? They haven't been able to industrialize to make their own, uh, to get together, make their own rubber and oil and jet fuel, like jet fuel just to fuel the planes. So in a way, they've got all this territory, but they can't develop it or industrialize it because they're in the middle of a war. So they're reliant on our oil to make their war machine go so that they can expand and they can do these things so it's important to know we put them in a fucking pickle like a real pickle um and so the japanese by no means want to attack the united states but while it's important to remember we think there's no way they're gonna try it right we're just gonna sit here with our head in the sand we'll step in at the end of the war the Japanese are thinking, well, if we attack them, they're going to get involved in the Western Front sooner or later. They're going to come in. They're going to be so involved with the West. We need to seize as much territory in the Pacific as we possibly can with what supplies remain to us that it's going to be such a stretched out dip, like distance. This is going to be such a huge front compared to little old, not that the Western Front is small, but compared to the entire Pacific, it's a pretty small front. There's no way. They're just going to give up. They're not going to want to go from place to place and fight this ridiculous battle until they finally make it to our mainland. It's a pretty daunting task on paper. So whereas... The U.S. thinks Japan's going to give up. Japan thinks the United States is going to give up. And that's going to be a really big problem for kind of how things are approached and what happens next. But I just love that at this point, diplomacy is based on, eh, they're just going to give it up. They're going to get tired. Well, it's all big measuring contest, right? Oh, yes. Definitely. I kind of figured in a, you know, in a hypothetical sense. So if you head south to like the Malaysia, Malaysia's got some pretty big oil fields. They've got refineries. Mm -hmm. They could produce and produce and they could have that precious resource from Malaysia if it wasn't for the fact they just needed time to develop those things. So let's say they don't have to like it's it's all a hypothetical, right? So let's say they don't they, they they are they have these big oil fields down there they're good they got what they need and let's say they never attack pearl harbor i i, I kind of feel like at least at that time what what you mentioned is their thought is if we attack they're just going to give up but if they didn't attack america the whole time hasn't done anything so they weren't going to they were going to continue to not do anything and it's it just so interesting to me that that one event um which at the time was a huge event sparked you know the, the 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 verbiage that you said before nationalism 
it sparked that it sparked that feeling that I just don't think I can comprehend and I don't think people of today's generation can comprehend where not only did you feel like it was your duty <laughs> duty you felt like it was your <laughs> responsibility duty uh, you felt like you were a lesser person because you could not contribute or join the military you felt like that if you were 16 17 18 and you went and you said i want to be in the military and go somewhere that when the, the the doctor said you can't do it it was like the worst possible feeling punch in the gut punch in the face that you could ever ever possibly feel that was so bad to an extreme that people that those kids would commit suicide because they couldn't contribute to the war and I just don't think that, like I said, I, I, I don't, I can't comprehend that type of feeling. And we've never really, you know, after, after 9-11, there was that sense, but, but not anywhere near what it felt like for an entire country to come together and basically rise from the ashes, all that could be possibly mustered from a country to get into a war and go fight everybody that was a quote bad guy. Like, like I said, it's unfathomable to me to have that sense of, I have to do this for my country and I have to do this right now. And it just, it boggles my mind to think what that 16, that 17, that 18 year old kid was thinking at the time and then when they go into a war like the war in the Pacific and they get on those little islands and they have those, like how your brain could process that, I just can't get it. I just, it, 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 it's all mushmash to me. I just it cannot comprehend how that works. Boggles the mind. I agree. Um, well, it's, it's kind of like you're talking about there with the Great Depression though, Jessica. Isn't that something that would play into it? It's not just the national spirit but coming out of that that time you need something to focus on this is oh no yeah and there's as we hey pudding people we've decided to chop this episode up into a couple parts uh you've just listened to part one part two will be coming up in the subsequent weeks thanks for listening